Father, it's good to pray that, good to request that, that you would have your way. We know it's good because we know that you're good. You're always good. We know that all of your plans for us are good plans. Your word tells us that. Plans to give us a hope and a future. For followers of your son, those who have trusted in your son, you say clearly in your word that you work in all things for their good. Thank you for that. So knowing that your plans are good, Lord, we can sing and we can pray and say, have your way in me. And I know, Lord, uh, in the day-to-day life, when my own desires rise up that are contrary to yours, Times I want to have my way in me, but just recognizing really that your way is infinitely better, pray that you do that. And I'm just thinking about the hearts that are right here in the sound of my voice. We're here this earlier this morning at a 9.30 service, those that are here, God, have your way in the life of this church said that individually, I'm going to pray that and say that corporately, Lord, have your way in the life of this church body so that you would be glorified here in greater and greater measure, so that the light that we are to this community uh, would be brighter and brighter, so that the testimony that we live out and communicate for Jesus Christ would reach further and further. You do that, Lord. Let 2012 just be a, a great year of your power, your glory, the lifting up of Jesus Christ many souls saved and disciples of Christ made in increasing measure do that and then Lord just right here this morning we are studying a pretty sensitive at times difficult to hear subject asking that your truth would be communicated by my lips this morning uh, accurately and humbly, unashamedly and boldly, that you would send it out through the power and the gifting of your Holy Spirit. I know it is not about me. You keep me out of the way and let Jesus be exalted and let the truth go out and Right to the hearts of those that are here, however that needs to be applied, would you do that? You'd let there be clarity here today about the truth that the enemy would not be able to distract and to confuse and to 
have any part of what's going on here, Lord. So, God, just, just do a great thing. We're trusting you to do that. Thanking you, Lord, that you're hearing us right now. You're here to meet with us right now in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we get started, get a, participate in a, just a point of celebration, really with the whole body here, we had a 101 class, a welcome class, a connecting with Cornerstone class last Sunday, and it's a class where individuals that are relatively new to the body uh, or have not had a chance to attend that class can go to and make a decision on whether to make this their church home, and so I've got uh, several names to read here. Many of them were here at the first service, but as I read your name, I'm just asking you to stand up and stay standing, and, and we will, as a family, welcome you with a, a rowdy round of applause. Okay, church, that's your cue when I'm all done. Okay. Andy and Stephanie Clary, Trish McDonald and her children Chelsea and Ian, granddaughter Avery, Tony and Anna Lucan, Ed and Dolores Guzman, children Michael, Olivia, Edward, Victoria. Donna Andrew, Jessica Burkhan, David and Susanna Kim, children David, Joy, and Young, Jonathan and Kristen Butler, Mark and Shelley Cooper, children Lily, Chase, and Elise, Patrick and Kay Dolphin, Jennifer Dolphin, daughter Samantha, Tim Beck, Kayla Lynch, Amber Lynch, Lou and Andrea Ulrich, and Christopher Ferreri. Would you just welcome them to the family? <laughs> you be seated. It's always great. It just is a great time to share with them. If you have not been to a Connecting with Cornerstone class, uh, we'll have that again here in a couple of months and uh, encourage you to make use of that. Please open up your Bibles, turn to the letter in the New Testament called Hebrews, and just put your finger in there. Let me just begin with a, just a brief review. We have been on a long extended series in the letter to, that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, but in the midst of that letter... As we have come to chapter 6, we have been talking about the incredible work of salvation and how it radically transforms an individual, gives them a brand new life. In Romans 5 and 6 there, it says that when you put your faith in Christ, you are crucified with Christ, crucified and dead to sin from that point on forward in, in your spiritual life and that you are also resurrected with Christ. In fact, followers of Christ, believers in Christ are said to be seated right now with Christ. Even if you're seated right here in the spiritual realm, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies and you are there and you are secure. And but here's the, here's the catch until heaven. Though we are made brand new and we are made alive spiritually and though we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, 
that we still are carrying around down here a mortal body. And that mortal body still has its tendencies to sin. And I don't just mean the tangible here. I mean that which makes up my mortal body, my, my mind, and its tendencies to think in ways that would not honor God, and then all the way just down through my mortal being. So there's that dilemma of something that is real and true and eternal and something that is yet becoming down here. And what Romans chapter 6 is about is about a false teaching that individuals were drawing from Paul's presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul was teaching the free grace of God that you don't deserve any of it, that it is all a work of Christ and what he's done on the cross and his resurrection and that God is the one that woos you to his son and gives you the faith to believe and you accept that and become saved and all of that is a work of God and His grace. And so some were saying, wow, if that's true, man, that we can just go out and sin and do whatever we want now that we're saved. And so Paul is dealing with that false conclusion in Romans 6. We've been talking about that extensively. But here is the subject Two weeks ago that we dealt with and have been now, this will be the third Sunday, kind of a mini-series within the series. And the subject is this, God's chastisement of the believer. Another way to say that is divine discipline. God's divine discipline on those who are His sons and His daughters. What specifically does God do when a child of His, one who has accepted His Son's sacrifice for sin and has died to sin and been resurrected and has a new eternal life, and yet in this earthly realm with this mortal body continues to live out sin? I don't mean that they occasionally blow it and somebody cuts them off and they have a slip of the tongue or a gesture or something that they shouldn't have on the highway. I'm not talking just about a moment of weakness that catches you off guard. I am referring to sin that is a repetitive sin, a path that the follower of Christ is walking down in disobedience, aware that that is happening. What does God do related to that situation? That's what we're talking about in this mini-series, and we'll conclude that today, mini-series about the divine discipline of the Christian.
So with that as a reintroduction here, we're going to jump in to our last session on that. And here is the question that's before us today. How are we to respond when we are under the divine discipline of God because of sin? What are we supposed to do? If that's your story right now or in the future is your story, it's my story, how am I supposed to deal with and handle the divine discipline of God? And what I want to do as I begin to answer that today, I want to begin by telling you a few things that you should not do before I tell you what you should do. Because the Word of God gives us some things that we should not do when we are under divine discipline. So we'll use that as a starting point. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, The writer here, the author of this letter, is writing to the Hebrew Christians. And he is writing to them in the midst of a time in which they are enduring some very difficult troubles. They're having some significantly hard times. It is Trouble in the form of persecution because of their commitment to Christ, because of their profession of Christ. Specifically, it is Jews who have converted to Christianity. And the fellow Jews in their area are persecuting them because they have left the rituals and the requirements of the Jewish faith, particularly the sacrificial system, the temple sacrifices and that extensive uh, process there. And they are under this persecution because they have converted to Christianity. And what's taking place in their hearts, the context of this story is, what's taking place in their heart is that they are, they are wavering. They are kind of getting under it instead of staying on top of it. And it is causing them to faint and begin to fail, and their hearts are turning back, and they are moving in a direction or considering moving in a direction to go back to the temple sacrifices so that they can get out from under this persecution that they're facing. That's the context here, and we're going to pull out a verse here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 5, and look at three things that we should not do when we're under divine discipline. Because what God was doing with them, here's the story, they were under God's divine discipline because their hearts were turning back to the 
empty forms of the Jewish religion instead of remaining faithful and true to Christ being the only sacrifice. And so they were under his chastisement. And Hebrews 12.5 says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. What I want to show you here is that there are three things stated in here that we are not to do. Two of them explicitly in the last half of the verse, but in the first half of the verse, in that statement there that opens up the verse, there is an implied truth or an implied error of what they shouldn't do, and by contrast, a truth of what they should do. He says here that they have forgotten the exhortation that addresses them as sons. Now, we could assume by that, if a quick reading, that the author here is asking them a question. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the truth? that God has in His Old Testament, that's what he would have been referring to here. I'm going to tell you the specific passage that he's referring to in a minute, but he is saying, it seems like on the surface, Hebrew Christians, have you forgotten the truth in the Old Testament about God's discipline that addresses you, that talks to you as sons or daughters? But in reality, the way that this verse is put together, the way the verbiage is in the Greek, He's asking a question, but it's a statement, not a question. He already knows the answer. It could be stated this way. How is it that you have forgotten? You knew this truth. How is it now that you have forgotten the truth about God's chastisement or divine discipline that really is a great truth about you being sons or daughters of God? How is it that you have forgotten that? And then the latter half of the verse is the two explicit statements that are the result of having forgotten. So let me just show you these three points here. And by way of their illustration, what we should not do. And here's the first thing that we should not do when we are under the divine discipline of God for sin. We must not forget or neglect God's Word. We must not forget or neglect God's Word. That's the first line of reasoning here. That the reason... They are having the troubles they're having is because what they should have known and should have held to, they have forgotten it. And the word in the Greek for forgotten is utterly forgotten. The literal translation is utterly forgotten. So as I study this, here's the picture. If I could try to paint what was happening in their hearts. I think this is clearly what the pen of the writer is painting here. <clears throat> that in the midst of their difficult situations, significantly difficult persecution, 
God was allowing that to come into their life. They were, because they were kind of waffling, they were failing, they weren't standing up and remaining true, and so that discipline of God was on them, and they began to focus on that, and it began to become all-consuming to them. They put in an inordinate amount of their attention on the problems that they were having, and it, in its consuming grip on their focus, it loomed so large in the horizon that they were neglecting the truth of God. They had walked away from keeping that clearly in their sights and had gotten to the point where all they could do was kind of commiserate in their misery and had forgotten all about the truth of God that talks about His discipline over His children that is really incredible truth. But because they had drifted away from that, They had gotten over here and gotten under the problems. And the problems, because of that, became overwhelming to them, became oppressive to them, became defeating to them because they weren't anchored over here on the promise of God that teaches a great truth about God's discipline. And specifically then, what are the two statements in this Last part of this verse that are the other two things that we should not do. So number number one, we have don't forget or neglect the Word of God. You're going to need the truth of what God's Word says if you're going to make it through divine discipline. If you're going to live through it faithfully and to grow through it like God intends for you to instead of being defeated by it. Here's the second truth. And it's seen in this expression, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here's the second truth of what you should not do. Don't dismiss divine discipline. Don't dismiss it. Let me explain what that means because the verbiage here is instructive. It is very pointed, and I, th- I think it will, I'm trusting it's going to make a lot of sense. He is referencing here an exhortation from the Old Testament, and that exhortation is almost verbatim quoted in the last part of verse 5 here. Let me read you from the Old Testament where the writer pulled that from. It is in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. As you look at the last half of this verse, listen to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Same two things here. Now, the, on the surface... They may not look exactly the same. Hebrews 12.5 says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And don't be weary of His rebuke. Proverbs 3.11 says, don't despise or be weary. So the difference in the first statement is, don't regard it lightly. In Proverbs, don't despise it. 
Those might look different, but they're actually really basically identical statements. And here's what they mean. It means to despise, to not heed God's discipline. It means to reject it. It means literally treat it lightly to view it as being of no value or being of little value as if you were to say realizing that God is bringing you under some discipline and as he does this in a graduated way, he does this Gently, he maybe rebukes you as you're, as you're hearing the Word of God, maybe right now as you're hearing the Word of God, that he is speaking to you about sin that you should not be participating in. And so his Spirit is gently speaking to you, rebuking you. That's a form of God's discipline, uh, wooing you back to himself. But to treat it lightly... Or to despise it is to do this. I don't have any time for that. That is not a valuable thing for me to give any energy, any emphasis, any focus to. I'm just going to treat it lightly. I'm basically, you know, I can hear it. I know that he's saying it, but I'm really just going to ignore it. I'm going to go on about my way, the way that I am going, because you know what, I really don't think God's going to do anything about this. That's treating it lightly. That is treating God in a cavalier way. That is dismissing Him. Ladies and gentlemen, can God be dismissed? Three of you know that He can't. I want all of you to know He cannot be dismissed. And do not misinterpret his gentle rebuke and wooing as he's talking to you if you're going a wrong way. Don't misinterpret that as being from a God who loves you and lavishes His grace on you and assume that He's not also a God who can speak and act in very tough love. Who, in fact, will act in very tough love if we do not heed the correction and respond to the wooing, the voice that is now whispering can raise its volume and raise its intensity and loves you enough so that he will do that because he will not sit back and let his children pursue destructive habits to themselves, to those around them, and to the witness of His Son. He will not just set back and let you continue 
to go that way. There is a passage that would really highlight that or emphasize uh, that truth. I think about, matter of fact, I think maybe folks, this is one of the, maybe one of the greatest insults to the Lord. And please hear me. I am talking to Brad Suter right now. As I have processed this this week, it is so easy for us to do what I'm talking about right now. Jesus, speaking to the church at Laodicea, Revelations chapter 3, listen to what he says to them, verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, talking about their spiritual commitment here. <clears throat> then listen to this statement. Would that you were either cold or hot, or I would rather you be cold or hot and not lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. To kind of ride the middle of the fence here and be a Christian, claim the name of Christ, and yet waffle in this and pursue sinful activities when you know that they're wrong, when I know that they're wrong, and you begin to hear the gentle voice of God's discipline, and you just kind of ignore it and you know, God's really not going to do anything about that, whether you think that expressly or not, or just display it by your actions, but basically you don't respond to His gentle instruction of you. What we are doing when we do that, we are dismissing Him. We are dismissing the sovereign God of the universe, and He will not be dismissed. He will not, not because he's vindictive in any way. Every thought he has toward you as a son or daughter of God is precious. He loves you. That's why he will not be dismissed because all of his activity toward you is to bless you, is to help you, is to grow you and take you to a place where you will be so glad you are there for all eternity as you experience the blessings and the reward of that growth. So he is not just going to sit back and let you do what is unhealthy and destructive for you and others. And to the name of his son, he is going to get your attention and turn the volume up. He, do, he does that to me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. Two chapters earlier from this same letter that we're looking at, the author is writing about those who knew Christ but yet were participating in persistent sinful activity. 
Listen to what he said, speaking to them about God's discipline. For we, this is Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know God who said, here's the truth we know about God. Listen, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge his people. That's the church. And it is a fearful thing for them to fall into the hands of a living God. Listen, if he is speaking to us and wooing us and talking to us about sinful pursuits and directions and we are not listening and responding. He loves you and me too much to just let it continue and he will not be dismissed. So the first truth that we should or thing that we should not do under divine discipline is to forget or neglect the Word of God. Secondly, we must not dismiss divine discipline. And number three, last part of Hebrews 12, 5. Here's the second explicit statement. My son, do not be weary when reproved by God. Don't be weary. That sounds, that kind of loses in the English translation here, it's emphasis. It also is a very strong word, and it means literally to be extremely weary. The picture here is of someone that is under it, that is experiencing the pressure and the difficulty and the trouble or the pain, and because of that and their focus on that, it is beating them down, and they are coming to the place of depression and despondency and they are failing and they are ready to give it all up. That's what he is talking about here when he says, don't be weary when reproved by God. And he's speaking again to the Hebrew Christians who were really under the difficult circumstances and were being disciplined by God because they were coming to the point of fainting and failing and giving up. The word, remember here, you've forgotten the exhortation. What was the exhortation? The word exhortation refers to courage. It is a picture of something that pours courage into our lives. He is saying then here, the, the exhortation, whatever it is, this exhortation is the thing that God speaks that helps to pour courage into our lives so that when He is disciplining us, when we know this truth, it pours courage in us to Remain faithful in the midst of the difficulty so that we're taught and learn what we need to learn and we respond and come back to a place of health 
and the exhortation is the 12th verse of Romans 3 or Proverbs 3:12 which is this the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights the discipline of the Lord we talked about this last week I'm not going to go into that again but the discipline of the Lord is the love of God in action it is God loving you too much to be a party to your pain and difficulty by just letting you. I mean, parents, would you do that? You knew your kid was headed to major trouble and you had it fully within your power to do something about it. Would you not do it and say, I am doing this because I love you? That is exactly what the writer here, both in Hebrews 12, 5 and in Proverbs 3, 12, is trying to communicate. What the enemy wants to say It's just polar opposite. And so many buy this, believers buy this, God doesn't care. I mean, you're going through this, look at what's happening to you. I mean, I'm going to maybe step on some, I'm going to step on my own toes here, but we need to see what this looks like. Why is, is it even worth it? I mean, I am doing my best. Yes, I'm making some mistakes here, but I'm really trying. And what is it getting me? What am I profiting here? I mean, I'm swimming upstream and I'm getting worn out here. It'd be so much simpler if I just caved and I just went with the flow of the world here. I mean, that is exactly what the Hebrew believers, many of them were wanting to do in the midst of their troubles. Man, it'd be so much easier if we just went back over here and got out from under these guys' incredible persecution and just went through the motions over here of the rites of Judaism. And And God comes along and says, I love you way too much to just let you do that because you are headed for major trouble. If you go back to the temple sacrifice, Hebrew Christians, the only thing the temple sacrifice was for was to show you throughout the Old Testament that God is holy and you are not and you cannot get to a holy God. I'll let you get little sneak peeks one day a year and I will hold back my wrath if you go through this extensive process, but I'm telling you it is really only to paint a picture of another sacrifice that's coming and that's the sacrifice of my son. How 
devastating it would have been for them to go back to that which was empty and powerless. And at times, in the midst of our difficulties and our frustrations, even being disciplined by God and getting weary under that and wondering, man, I'm just tired. We can be led to just, in a sense, throw in the towel. So that's what we should not do. We, sh- we should not neglect or forget the Word of God. We should not dismiss divine discipline. And we should not give up underneath divine discipline. What should we do? That's the negative. Here's the positive side. What should we do? I'm going to start with a passage in Revelations 3, 19, and then jump back to Hebrews 12. But here's the first thing. If we are under the divine discipline of God, we need to repent. We need to repent of our sin. Revelations 3, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here's the call. So be zealous and repent. When I am disciplining you, Jesus says right there, when I am disciplining you, what you need to do is be zealous and repent. What does that mean? It means that you, I'll give you a more extensive definition in a minute, but it means that you turn back, you turn away from the sin, back to obedience, and you move back toward God zealously. You recognize where you're going and agree that it's not the right way to go and it's headed to a dangerous place and you turn around and zealously you move back to a place of obedience. Specifically now, what is involved in repentance? There there are some elements that are included in repentance. So if you're being told, you know, by God's word to repent, by Christ to repent when you're under divine discipline and God is showing you your sin, what does it mean? What is involved in that repentance? Let me give you four things very fast. Number one, it starts with the right view. Repentance starts with the right view. The right view meaning this, that you see sin as it really is. Not, not, I feel the pain of my sin, and so I need to repent because it's hurting me. That's not the the right view of sin that is involved in repentance. The right view is that I see that my sin is rebellion against the holy God that I see that what I'm doing is I am rising up in antagonism through my sin against the God who loves me completely, who has lavished His grace on me, who has given me more than I could ever think or imagine that I am in my sin seriously 
affronting that holy God. That is a right view of sin that's a part of repentance. And what follows the right view is secondly the right heart. The right heart. Here's how that works. When you see sin as it really is, as a act of open rebellion and an affront to the perfect, loving, gracious, holy God of the universe who's your Father, when you see that, then your heart becomes repentant. It becomes contrite. It becomes broken over that. And you are, in a sense, melted inside over that sin. So if you're painting a visible external of what's internal, you are broken into your sin. And, oh, God, I am so sorry that I did that. That's the movement of your heart, a contrite, repentant heart. Here's what David said. He described that kind of a heart when he sinned with Bathsheba and was called on it, and he was repenting. Listen to what he said God wanted. Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. In other words, if you have sinned and you have broken out in rebellion in that sin against God, if your heart becomes broken and your spirit contrite, God will not despise you for your sin. Because what He wants is that inward brokenness. So it starts with the right view. You see sin as it is. And that right view produces a broken, contrite heart. And then number three is the right lips. The right lips. You see, here's what the lips do. The lips give voice to the movement of the heart. Who can finish this statement? It's bold. A person here that can finish this statement or many of you. It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. You see it right? It produces a brokenness in here. And then what do your lips do? You, your heart is overflowing with con, a contrite, broken spirit and your lips speak it. Oh God, I'm sorry. In confession, the words come out. Oh God, I'm sorry for what I did. Oh God, forgive me for that weakness and how I have affronted you. I, I don't know what words you'd say, but you understand that the lips are giving voice to what is happening in the heart. So you've got a right view, you've got a right heart, you've got right lips, and then the culmination, the real understanding of the word is right action. Is right action. You realize that and you turn your feet back, leaving sin behind and coming back to the place of obedience and walking in holiness before the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's here to hear to hear to hear. And what should we do when we're under divine discipline? What we should do is repent. 
We should see sin for what it is and feel it, how we should feel it and speak what we should speak and turn our feet and our actions back to a place of obedience. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, again, written to this group of people, this is just four verses earlier, same context, same group. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer here makes a direct connection between a cloud of witnesses that is surrounding the Hebrew Christians and their ability to endure this divine discipline. There is a truth here for you and I. Let me state it, then I'll explain it. The truth is this, that we need to learn from godly men and women, specifically here, the examples of the godly men in Scripture. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12 follows right on the heels of Hebrews chapter, let me say that again. Hebrews chapter 12 follows right on the heels of Hebrews chapter, yes. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of the great men and women of faith who went through the difficulties, serious difficulties, to death difficulties. And the picture here is of a cloud of witnesses with that caliber of people. Now, when you hear that phrase, cloud of witnesses, here is what probably is painted in your mind. It's painted in my mind for years. See you in an arena. And in this arena, large maybe a coliseum type arena and the and the stands move out and up and are filled with these godly men and women who have gone before and there I am on the playing field of life and they are looking down at me as spectators now they have made it and they are now not there to get entertainment out of my pain, but they are there cheering me on. Saying, come on, Brad. You can make, you can endure. You can carry on. That is a cool picture. That's not this picture. I am pretty convinced. I know for sure it's not the main picture. I'm not even sure it's the secondary picture because the picture that the writer is painting here is way greater than that. Way greater than that. The word here for witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, the Greek word is martis. 
N-A-R-T-U-S. And it's the word from which we get our English word martyr. It was a common word in the early days of the church used to describe those who, because of their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, faced a violent death because of that testimony. They are or have by their life provided a proven genuine witness that God strengthened them to the very end. Help them to endure to the very end that as they were faithful, God was always faithful. And what they received for their faithfulness was rewards so far great and exceedingly abundantly more than any pain that they experienced for being true to Christ. So that the connection is this. This is not an arena of spectators. What this is, this is an arena of witnesses who are not watching something, they're saying something. And what they're saying is, God is faithful to the end. We look at them. It's not them looking at us. It's their lives providing this unbelievable testimony to us as we run the race, saying to us, God is going to see you through. God is not going to abandon you. God is not abandoning you in the midst of your pain. God is right there, and he's carrying you through. And what he's doing is a beautiful thing through your life. We can see that when we look back on those who had violently died for their faith. We weren't walking through that pain, but we look now and say, oh my word, what a testimony went out from their life as they did that. And what the writer here is saying, you need to learn from them. You need to look to their example and listen to what their lives are shouting down through the halls of history. They are saying to you, you can make it in fact God is going to take you all the way through, and you're, it's going to be a ride of victory, not a ride of defeat. That's what the text is teaching us here. It is telling us that we need to learn from godly men and women as we walk through divine discipline. And then, next, verses 2 and 3. And folks, this is a compliment to what was just said, but this is really the key. This is, this is the great jewel of truth right here. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. They were facing this. The Hebrew Christians were in the 
thick of this, not nearly to the extent of Christ, but they were in the thick of this. Hostility from sinners Jesus faced against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you will not fail or fall down or become totally despondent in the midst. What do you need to do? You need to look to men and women who have been faithful and God has used. But ultimately, ultimately, here's what you need to do. You need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, verse 3. You need to consider Him. Here's the one word connection I would use. You need to put all of your focus on Jesus. You need to put your focus on Jesus. And as you look at Him and contemplate Him and study Him in the midst of discipline, it is going to give you the example through that truth of His life that will help take you all the way through to the end. What I want you to see here is the similarity in all three of these major veins here. The first one is, don't forget the truth that God has spoken and has been written down, number one. Number two, learn from those who have lived the truth through even painful, brutal experience. Number three, focus on the one who is the truth of God in living flesh. What is the common statement in every one of those? The truth of God. You get away from the truth of God and you will not endure divine discipline in a way that will shape you and mold you and bless you. It's going to be your connection to the truth, the truth of what God has said. Don't forget it nor neglect it. The truth of what others have shown through their lifestyle, look to them and learn. And the truth of the one who actually was truth in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those are right in here. And when we become dull to the word of God, then what happens in our lives is really a compounding problem. First of all, we are more apt to move into sin when we become dull to this. That's the, kind of the start of the problem. But then as we do move into it, we become duller to the Word of God so that when the discipline comes, instead of it being instructive and turning us back, we get beaten down under it and we completely forget or utterly forget the very truth that we need to know that will hold us up in the midst of it. So, so far, we need to repent of sin. We need to learn from godly men and women. And we need to focus on Jesus. And then finally, we need to endure 
we need to endure. Verse 12, Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That statement there is saying the reason you have to endure it's because it's the loving discipline of God. Don't get out from under it. The literal meaning of that word endure in the Greek is to remain under. It's to remain under. Don't try to worm out from under the discipline of God. It's therefore a reason given in love to instruct and turn you back. This final statement in verse 7, just to highlight that truth right there, the statement that says, God is treating you as sons. Some of your translations might say, God is dealing with you as sons, or sons or daughters. And what that means in the literal translation is this. It is a beautiful picture. It says that when you are under the discipline of God, it's not a lightning bolt of punishment that God is sending your direction. The literal translation is this. God is bearing himself toward you. Wow, that's a radical difference than some ticked off, arbitrary, kind of shoot him with the lightning bolt, he blew it. No, it's a God who loves you so much that as he sees you, walking the path of faithfulness and you turn off and you begin to pursue some ongoing sinful activity. He loves you so much that in discipline, He actually follows you down the path. He bears Himself to you so that He can come to you in that discipline in an act of His love and say, Brad, lovingly, gently, Brad, don't do this. Don't do this. Come back. Repent of that. You are headed for serious trouble. I am here to get you. I have borne myself to you, and I am here to actually take you back to this place of health and peace and joy. That's what the discipline of God is all about. So what we need to do is we need to stay under it. We need to, we need to aggressively do whatever we can to be under it so that we learn what we need to learn and get the blessing that we need from it. Would you please stand? I know I, as I... quite often do, but I promise you I never intend to do. I preach too long. I know it. But 
You need the truth. I need the truth. Oh, without it, we are so helpless and hopeless. So I don't know what's going on in your heart. Three weeks now, we're closing this mini-series up here, but three weeks talking about the divine discipline of God on the believer's life. Man, if you're experiencing that, repent. Repent. Let God, who has borne himself to you, take you back. Let's pray. Father, just have your way. Holy Spirit, just have your way. Nothing else to say. Just have your way, Lord. In Christ's name I pray.